You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, are America and China any closer to ending the trade war or could there be a further escalation? Russia accuses the Ukrainian leader of provoking a naval confrontation in the Black Sea to boost his ratings ahead of next year's presidential elections. And when Democrats win and we will win tonight... We will have a Congress that is that is open, transparent and accountable to the American people. Veteran U.S. politician Nancy Pelosi faces a major vote on Wednesday in her battle to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. My guests Stephen Diel and Carlo Bonura will be discussing these and the day's other top story, including should France return thousands of precious works of art to the countries from which they were taken? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst Stephen Diel and Carlo Benura. He's a senior teaching fellow in Southeast Asian politics at SOAS. SOAS meaning the School of Oriental and African Studies. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, more than a month after America accused China of meddling in its domestic affairs, the mood music coming out of Washington could almost be described as harmonious. Top White House economist, economic advisor Larry Kudrow hinted there was a good possibility that America and China might cut a deal bringing an end to their ongoing trade war. In the past few months, both countries have been slapping higher tariffs on each other's goods in a tit-for-tat war that analysts believe could undermine the global economy. Yet for a deal to succeed would mean both sides agreeing to make concessions. And that might be too big an ask. Or could it be? (laughs) (laughs) Carlo, I mean, first of all, let's take a look at... um, the economic analysis, or that, that assessment, I should say, from Mr Kudrow. I mean, is that optimism genuine or is it simply the White House being deliberately misleading, sending out these mixed, mixed messages to wrong-foot everybody? Uh, that's a good reading of it. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I think that uh, we have seen over the last month or so uh, a constant, um, constant low-level speculation that the trade war might be over. Uh, I, all of this optimism has has turned into nothing. I think the G20 summit will be a very difficult stage for uh, Trump and uh, Xi to agree on a deal that would um, that would really bring an end to the trade war. It's not really clear what the Trump administration precisely wants. And if we look at these other disputes, uh, we see very clearly that excuse me, other trade disputes, particularly with uh, Japan, for instance. And by dispute here, we don't mean technical disputes. We simply mean disagreements over where trade levels should be, it usually is that the United States has a general complaint that these trade deficits are too large uh, and that it's looking for countries to artificially stimulate uh, trade uh, flows back uh, into the United States. Uh, so, excuse me, trade flows back out of the United States, um, usually by through large purchases of military equipment or air uh, airliners or Boeing jets. And I think this is unrealistic. It doesn't get to the um, the root causes of the problem. Mm. And, and it's interesting, Stephen, isn't it, that uh, Carlo said that in, in many ways, um, perhaps America is, is a bit unfocused 
in terms of these accusations against against China and Jetta. Mr. Trump would say, well, it's all about intellectual property. That's part of it. Basically, the Chinese are nicking our goods. We're putting in the work on the intellectual stuff and you're just basically plagiarising it and passing it off on the cheap. Juliet, I think I should congratulate you, first of all, on managing to get the words Trump and intellectual into the same sentence. <laughs> um, I, 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 intellectual I, property. <laughs> intellectual property, indeed. Um, which... Yes, everyone knows that um, China has been uh, uh, doing naughty things with, with the West intellectual property for, for many years. Um, I, I just, uh, I just think you know where, where, where are? How can anyone guess what's going to happen ahead of a meeting with Trump? I mean, it's just you know he the, the guy is so far off the wall. Um, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to the, the meeting with uh, with Putin earlier this year, where you know two days later he had to recant and said, well, where, you know, when I said. I would trust him. I thought everyone understood. I meant I wouldn't trust him. It was a slip um, of the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Can happen to anyone. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and um, I, I love there's a wonderful headline in the Asia Times, you know, for insight on what will happen, flip a coin. You know, even the real deep specialists on this are saying, you know, we just don't know. And I think that says so much about Trump's policies that, that we really don't know. And I, I think, uh, and Carla, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even those quite close to him around him, his advisors, um, you know, don't always know what, it, what he's going to come out with. Um, yeah. And although he's been banging the China drum quite hard and saying this is outrageous, um, he, he's also, he's running out of, it seems he's running out of dinner guests, slightly rushing ahead, but, you know, he's talking about not having dinner with Putin. So, you know, who's he going to have dinner <laughs> with at the G20 if he, if he keeps... Uh, keeps cutting all these people Maybe out. Maybe help from his wife. <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of the advisors, I think that uh, although they may not know what he says or is going to say on Twitter, his trade advising, uh, the, the group that is advising him on trade, particularly uh, Leisinger and Navarro, these are staunch economic nationalists and they believe uh, that uh, this is precisely the battleground. These are precisely the battles that, that Trump should be fighting and precisely the battlegrounds that they should be fighting on. And then what's interesting, though, is if we look at the trade data that was just released on shipping rates. Uh, so shipping is um, has reduced by 23%, I think, uh, since August of last year, basically when the trade war began. But if you look at the import and export volumes over the last uh, quarter, I believe it is, uh, global import-export volumes are down. Import-export volumes across Asia are down. Uh, but it's the United States which is exporting more and importing more. And it's the importing more that is the problem for Trump. The United mm -hmm. States has a, an economy which is highly integrated into global um, into the global economy and uh, a middle class which demands imported goods. Mm. And without resolving those two at a, things... At a cheap price, effectively. At a cheap price, exactly. Uh, Walmarts are... You know, the reason why Walmarts are economic institutions is because you can buy Chinese goods for very cheap mm. there. And, and that, I think, uh, in some ways, sums up the problem for Trump. There is no way that any of these side deals or uh, temporary agreements are going to um, actually resolve the problems that he sees as facing the national economy if these demands still remain right, in place. Right, because basically it, it, it feeds into the supply chains more than anything. You, you mentioned there the example of, of Walmart. It is a global supply chain. It's very, very complicated. So how do you? How, so basically he's, he's trying to unpick that using uh, China, if you like, as, as the battering ram. But look... We can we we get where where Trump is coming from in terms of fighting the deficit, bringing it down, also tackling areas of intellectual property. But what is it that China wants in in return apart from respect? Well, they want respect. They want um, they, they want trade. You know, they want to be able to sell goods. I mean, their their economy is still doing mm. reasonably well. But is well, there a concession well though, that there has to be a balance well, that it can't all be one sided? Well, I think the interesting thing is that uh, when Trump started banging the drum about um, uh, sanctions against China and, and, you know, that we're, we're, we're going to put up the, the tariffs on Chinese goods and so on. Um, 
the Chinese position was absolutely firm. They they showed no sign of uh, being worried by this at all. They well, you know, sort of okay, tough. You try it, mate. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I think they're they've they've held that very firm position. So I think that any sign of Trump sort of coming back to them, he will be greeted with a smile, and then they'll say, yeah, okay, let's talk. I mean, they are the Chinese are, are very good at doing yeah. that. You know, they they don't show weakness. But mm. Carlos, is there any suggestion that? Um, China is beginning to hurt because there's always a lot of analysis of the economic data that comes out of Beijing and concerns that perhaps you're not getting the full picture. But from your from your knowledge, is it beginning to hurt China at all? I think it's beginning to hurt both economies. Uh, <coughs> what's interesting, uh, because my focus is on Southeast Asia, so uh, you can see the impact of the trade war on Southeast Asian supply chains that uh, supply Chinese factories, which is interesting because we think about this as a U.S.-China trade war, but there are a, there's a wide array of countries that are actually uh, uh, directly connected to the trade war and whose economies are either benefiting from it because supply chains in both China and the United States are redirecting toward these economies uh, who are who or who are um, directly hurt by the trade war because their economies are no longer excuse me that the, their yeah economies are no longer the places where China's going for natural resources to uh, you know to um, uh, for their industries or for, as I said before, these, again, so more technical supply chains. Uh, and this is actually, in Southeast Asia, you see the effects very clearly. In China, I think, uh, you know, the effects are uh, also um, fairly substantial. The question is whether or not the government has the wherewithal to um, to uh, write out these uh, these effects. And so far, it's as as we just talked about, it's, it's fairly clear that the, the government is staying put. Mm. But then there is the view that perhaps uh, the Chinese do have more wiggle room because of the nature of their economy, because it is centralised. So there, there are certain interventions that they can take that perhaps other economies can't because they're constrained by fiscal rules. They can, and, and that's why you know I think they're not going to give any ground to, to Trump. They, they're going to wait for Trump to turn around and, and possibly have this dinner date and over dinner make some sort of concession, and they will say thank you very much. Um, but I don't, I don't think they're going to give any ground at all on this one. Mm. Really. And, and we, we're talk, let's get back to the idea of, of hurting, because we have seen, for example, the, the row between Donald Trump and General Motors. Mm. Now, again, there is the view from GM's point of view that, look, we've had to make these changes, close down some of the plants because of the changing nature of what, of what our customers expect, but also the trade tariffs are not helping. But then having said that, Mr. Trump has actually used that to basically say, look, it's not my fault, it's the fault of the Chinese, and thereby absolving himself of any responsibility. Yeah, it's very difficult to figure out the politics <laughs> on this one. Uh, trade wars, uh, particularly trade, war, uh, trade wars over... Um, importers that uh, provide, as we said a second ago, very, very cheap goods uh, is going to have the effect of uh, both uh, raising prices for consumers, but also when the the trade war bites at home, uh, you know, the potential for large job losses. I think here, um, but, but what is the politics here in terms of Trump's attitude? I think him lecturing or berating General Motors actually plays to his base uh, to some degree. Those people on Capitol Hill who are worried about this rhetoric that, you know, president shouldn't t have this role of uh, publicly shaming CEOs when they're taking these type of decisions. Uh, th that concern is going to be there. I'm not sure it's going to get in Trump's way in terms of getting things uh, done, but uh, certainly if these job losses begin to add up, he's going to have a big problem. Mm. But you have to ask yourself, what is going to resolve this in the end? Can it be like negotiations 
or, if anything, the financial markets? Because, again, looking at the politics of this, Stephen, we have seen the US markets going through a bull run at the moment, and Donald Trump has taken the credit for that. Obviously, if it goes in the opposite direction, then um, there'll be an excuse to walk away, I guess. Well, I, I was wondering what you know how, how actually the, the whole GM, General Motors story could, could play into all this, because surely that is an example of somewhere where, as you say, he's been playing on it, he's been basking in the glory of, you know, and making America great again and so on, and, and then, you know, look how well we're doing. And suddenly there's been, you know, on the eve of this meeting, with a well, potential meeting with with uh, with G, um, and certainly the G20 anyway, you know, suddenly he's had quite it's quite a bombshell. I mean, what, what GM have said, you know, that it's not going as well as we thought. And it's all very well him turning around and, and trying to blame someone else, particularly you know, the Chinese or an external... Um, partner um but um you know you can't have it both ways you can't always take the credit for saying it's thanks to me that the economy is doing better and suddenly if you get a big blip like this uh, not take some of the blame mm, a space to be watched especially on friday's g20 which is taking place in argentina buenos aires in fact the capital let's move on now to russia where the president the russian president vladimir putin has accused ukraine's leader petro poroshenko of provoking a naval confrontation off crimea to boost his ratings ahead of the 2019 elections Now, on Sunday, Russian FSB border guards opened fire on two Ukrainian gunboats and a tug before capturing the 24-strong crew. It's also emerged that Russia is sending more of its advanced S-400 surface-to-air missile systems to Crimea amid the rising tension. So, Stephen, as as an expert on, on Russian affairs, well, what is Russia playing at and what message, if any, is Moscow trying to send out to the West through this particular drama? I can't say I predicted exactly that this would happen, but I've thought for quite some time, some weeks, that we were going to see some escalation in the Ukraine crisis um, because, obviously, it all uh, it started over four and a half years ago now. Um, when it started getting bogged down, Putin turned his and Russia's and, in some ways, the world's attention to Syria. Um, the Syrian conflict is... Karma. Coming to an end, it's only karma. Um, and I've thought, and I, this isn't just me, a number of us in the, the, the Russian watching world um, have expected something to kick off again in Ukraine. Um, and I think the fact that, um, I mean, just, you know, let's, let's look at the fact. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that Putin says that, uh, oh, you know, the Ukrainians started, he always says that, you know, he said the Georgians started the war in 2008. Um, uh, and to be perfectly honest, I don't believe it for one minute. You know, I, if you see the, the video of the Russian ship ramming one of these Ukrainian vessels and hear the dialogue where um, the, the captain is clearly saying to whoever's steering the vessel, you know, go after him, get him, get him. And with a fair sprinkling of Russian swear words thrown in as well. Um, so, you know, that was a deliberate action. I mean, that is that is a violation of all the rules of the sea. You know, <laughs> vessels mm. are not supposed to ram into each other. Then you see that actually underneath this bridge, which should never have been built because Crimea is actually a part of Ukraine, uh, but the Russians went ahead and built it. And in, in, in the main uh, passage underneath, the Russians parked a great big um, cargo, tank, uh, cargo carrier, um, thus making it more difficult for any vessels, Ukrainian or otherwise, mm. to, to get into, into the Sea of Azov. Um, and I mean, it's you know, it's it's almost pathetic to be honest, because uh, they've you know they they're making a real choke point. It's always a choke point anyway. It's pretty narrow. But when you s- stick a large vessel across the main passageway through this bridge that you shouldn't have built, um, 
then to turn around and blame the Ukrainians, you know, these are three tiny vessels. Mm. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, so I don't believe a word of what the Russians are saying. Um, right. And but, what worries me is where it goes from here. And, and that's the point, isn't it, Carlo? Because from Petro Poroshenko's perspective, he's worried that this is just another step towards an invasion. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, it, it's very difficult here because there's politics on both sides in terms of how uh, this is uh, playing out in uh, with regard to Ukrainian domestic politics. Uh, I think that previous, and again, correct me if I'm wrong in this case, uh, previous in these previous conflicts, these frozen conflicts uh, that um, kind of ring uh, Russia, where it's in Russia's interest to actually keep them frozen, uh, it may be possible that this is what we're headed towards, and that Crimea actually, rather than simply being annexed and uh, becomes the... Um, you know, becomes uh, more and more uh, over time becomes uh, the new normal in terms of the geography there. Uh, that actually, what we're finding now is new territorial claims, uh, possibly new uh, border. Um, you know, new violence along the border, and that actually, that what I was what I was struck by was the uh, the territorial claim in this instance. Because if I'm mm. not mistaken, that although the the claim over Crimea itself. Uh, is a obviously a territorial claim. This is really the first time in which we've seen um, the this claim to the exclusive territory within the and the sea lane uh, being used. Right, but, and that's but, interesting that, but that but that would effectively reinforce Poroshenko's fears that this is this is a slow creep towards towards an invasion. That is the long term goal, step by step. Don't don't slowly slowly catch your monkey, basically. Indeed, and if you stop Ukrainian vessels using their major ports like like Mariupol in on the Sea of Azov. Um, then also you go back to something we were talking about back in 2014 into 2015, um, where the Russians actually, if they're going to make Crimea properly a part of Russia, they want a land access to it. You know, they built this bridge, but um, the, 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 the Ukrainians have been cutting off water supplies to Crimea. There's the, the talk then, and I think there were there were certainly it looked by their troop movements as if they were they were perhaps planning it, and then they stopped, but they could try again, of actually taking all that coastline, including Mariupol, which is which is a very significant port, very significant Ukrainian city, and actually pushing through so that they, they then link Crimea by land. And then that, that that's, mm. from a purely practical point of view of supplying it and so on, it makes it a lot better because it's not, you know, even with a bridge, it's not that easy to get all the supplies in, particularly for things like water and electricity. So um, th- th- these are the sort of fears that all this brings back to uh, back into people's minds. Mm. But, but Carlo, the other thing which, which, which really s- sticks out in this is um, the apparent impotence, if you like, of the West. Because, yes, governments can stand up and condemn Moscow, but Moscow will carry on regardless. And Donald Trump has said, look, I might not talk to Mr. Putin at the G20, but might is not the same as saying we will not talk at the G20. So really, Russia feels that it has carte blanche in this. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, there was some analysis of this which said that perhaps this is a provocation that the United States won't be able to let stand. And I I don't think that's uh, the case. What's interesting to me is that this is really, although there's a lot of resistance out there in the international community towards uh, Trump's bluster and potentially uh, some of the policies, depending on what we're talking about, uh, he really hasn't come up against, and we were just talking about another example of this a second ago, 
he really hasn't come up against pure intransigence, you know, a, a, a situation which cannot be resolved, in which he's completely powerless uh, to resolve it. And it's going to be interesting to see what he does in terms of his international posture, but also what his administration does when he's in the exact same situation that uh, Obama was in, in terms of uh, letting this mm. uh, all kick off. The so-called off. red lines, basically. Yeah, how, exactly. How far yeah. do you go? But, but I guess as well, Stephen, that this episode could also expose these, or further expose the known divisions in Europe. So maybe this is also one one of Mr. Putin's ways of, of testing this, because obviously the order in Europe has changed, certainly of populist governments, etc., some of which um, have been saying some very pleasant things about about Russia. Absolutely. Um, that That is, a, a, I think, a real worry, because if we look at, you know, why were sanctions put in place? Because Russia broke international law by seizing Crimea and then sent its army into eastern Ukraine. And yet, and yet, we have some Europeans, indeed, some in, in European governments, who are saying, well, maybe we should do away with these sanctions. You know, nothing has happened mm. to change the reason why they were, why they were put in place in the first place. And this is a suggestion that actually it could only get worse. So um, at a time when there are divisions in Europe, uh, when we have a, an American president who seems to flip one way and then the other, um, this is something, this is, this is classic territory for Putin to, uh, to try and take advantage of it. Mm. And I suppose the final point on this, Carlo, is that uh, you could argue that maybe Moscow feels emboldened because the world is distracted. It's distracted by the fallout from the Khashoggi murder, from um, what, uh, what is happening in Yemen, dare I say, Brexit over here. And again, that unpredictability coming out of the United States, that there is no coherent or a traditional coherent message of support with America and its traditional allies. Yeah, I, I don't know how much effect uh, Brexit and the Khashoggi murder has in general in terms of uh, when this uh, type of um, incident would be useful to uh, Russian geopolitical aims. But I think that your point earlier about uh, dis, um, a disagreement or divisions within Europe coupled with uh, a United States administration, which is fairly antagonistic to European governments, means that uh, Putin, if he continues to uh, play the Crimea um uh, it played Crimea in the way he has, which are these small incidents constantly uh, testing Western claims uh, in terms of their rejection of uh, Russian sovereignty over Crimea. I think that this is uh, there's an opening there that he's definitely exploiting. Mm, okay, then. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Stephen Dior and Carlo Bonura are my guests. Coming up next, can veteran US politician Nancy Pelosi beat down the opposition and succeed in her bid to become Speaker of the House of Representatives? The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. 
The Escapist from the editors and bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House. Still with me are Stephen Dior and Carlo Benura. Now, the veteran US politician Nancy Pelosi faces a major test on Wednesday in her bid to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. The California Democrat is expected to win her party's backing at a special caucus, but that won't be enough to silence her opponents who believe she doesn't reflect the changing political mood that has gripped the party after its recent successes in the midterm elections. If 78-year-old Pelosi survives Wednesday, then an open-floor vote in Congress next year will determine whether she is elected as House Speaker. Carlo, is Nancy Pelosi the victim of ageism, sexism, or perhaps both? Wow. Uh, (laughs) I think she... I don't think so. I I think that the fact that she is likely to be the next Speaker of the House demonstrates that uh, Congress is an open enough uh, institution for... I mean, she had the position before, so... Um, but what's interesting to to me was the piece you uh, played, her, the little snippet you played at the very beginning of the of the hour, because uh, there she's talking about an open and accountable Congress, and I was wondering what does that actually mean? What is she? There, because there there is no stated open reform agenda for the way Congress works, and in fact the 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 fact that she is coming back and will retain the leadership or the leadership role. Uh, uh, demonstrates that actually, uh, you know, politics and the political structures, the elite structures within the Democratic Party are pretty static. And in fact, there might be a, a room for uh, a little bit of um, opposition to the leader just to demonstrate that there there have been forces, uh, for instance, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters um, that uh, actually are shaping the modern Democratic Party uh, that Pelosi herself, who's a career politician, might not reflect. Yeah, and, and that's the point, isn't it, Stephen? Because, look, we saw that, that some of the new people who came up after the midterms and perhaps uh, the vision that they have for America is different to, to what has been espoused before by the Democrats. And this is part of the change. And maybe it's about time the party embraced it rather than resisted it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what one you mentioned, um, I mean, you mentioned ageism and sexism, but um, I mean, I would have thought that um, actually there were, there were enough uh, women Democrats around that, that that it's probably not sexism, but you know as you said she's seventy eight, um, and if if people are looking for her deputies are in a similar age group as well yeah, apparently yeah <laughs> uh, and so you know if pe- that, that that to my mind it seems the the, the more likely you know, that that people might feel that she's therefore a bit out of touch um, as Carlo said she's she's held the post of speaker before I think from two thousand and seven mm. she's the first woman in the post yeah the first woman. Um, you know, I think the idea of having a woman, I'm sure a lot of Americans would, would, would think great, but maybe a different woman and a, a younger and more energetic one. Mm. Okay. And final point on this, because I mean, she is a smart political operator, so surely that experience is too good to pass up. I think this is the argument. I think that uh, given the position that the Democrats are in right now, a lot of momentum from the midterm elections, uh, a Trump administration that seems fairly difficult to... Uh, to take down, uh, as many people thought that it, the the administration would be over within the first six months, um, and that in, regardless of the concerns, the kind of rebellious concerns of the freshman class, uh, in fact, um, she's. Many people have been arguing, establishment de- Democrats have been arguing that she's exactly the person you want there.
Okay, then let's move on now to our final and perhaps most controversial subject. This is the head of France's greatest collection of African art has condemned a report calling on the items to be returned to the countries from which they were taken. Stéphane Martin of the Quai branly jacques chirac Museum in Paris, which holds more than two-thirds of the 90,000 African treasures in French public collections, said the report had tainted, quote, everything that was collected and bought during the colonial period with the impurity of the colonial crime. Bit of a mouthful, but is he right? I suspect what he's saying is, look, you can't really confuse this collection with um, with colonialism, even though colonialism was a bit of a crime, or more than a bit of a crime, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 to, to my mind... Um this is this is one where you you could be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, you know, what, what, where does it stop? You know, do we? We here, here we are in London at the British Museum. It has the most wonderful collection of all sorts of artifacts. Um, I'm not saying for the you know just because it's got to be the British Museum kept together, but you know these were brought over uh, or or bought. Some were bought or as, given you know, as they gifts. Just, or given as gifts. You know, they weren't all, they weren't all stolen um, in order to preserve them. And if you look at what has happened in places like Syria. Um, or, or in Afghanistan and so on, where, where age, you know, ancient, ancient artifacts have been destroyed, mm. uh, willfully destroyed, then surely, you know, if they're, if they're in a safe place and well protected, it, um, it, it's, it should be, they should be preserved. And that's the point, isn't it, Carlo? Because when you've got very old antiquities, it costs money to look after them and also they need to be held in a country which is politically stable. Uh, Yes. However, this is, I think, uh, not the full picture. I think what we need to realize is that uh, this call for this call for the mass repatriation is novel insofar as it's a mass repatriation. uh, And it should be the beginning of a broader conversation. And that conversation should dwell on how museums are curated and be founded on the fact that uh, widely recognized fact that Museums are highly political in their curation. They're also highly political in their collections. And the idea that you walk into the British Museum, which is the closest example to us, uh, and there is no transparency uh, of where the item comes from uh, or even how the item entered into collection. I think these are critical issues that museum viewers, but also museum, the people who head up museums, uh, should think about. Okay, well, we've had a very civilised discussion about this because I, I understand that you two uh, were very sort of close to crossing swords before you came <laughs> on the microphone. So we've ended on a very civilised note. But look, that brings us to the end of today's show. Stephen DL and Carlo Bonuro, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and researched by Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was David Stevens.